I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. All right. We think we've pulled this show together. More than 50,000 Southern Baptist congregations sent delegates to Birmingham, Alabama this week. And those delegates knew they were headed into a very difficult and possibly transformative moment for the church. Southern Baptists are confronting a long secret history of sexual abuse among church leaders and a response, much like in the Catholic Church, that ignored it, diminished it, and concealed it. The Southern Baptist hierarchy is also grappling with foundational beliefs about the role of women. In our newest Women of Faith conversation, we're going to talk about the reckoning going on in the Southern Baptist Church, but also how it reflects the push for change by women across many denominations. And I'd like to hear from you. If you grew up in a conservative faith community, Do you have confidence that the church leaders were as committed to accountability and equity as they should have been? We know how Catholic church leaders failed terribly in that. How are your faith leaders handling calls for accountability now? So I'd like to know whether in your faith community, whatever it is, whether you see church leaders being accountable to the idea of equity, to the idea of transparency, to social justice. Is that something that you can say, yes, my church understands this, particularly if you grew up in a, in a more conservative faith community? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Ashley Easter is with us. She's a Christian feminist writer and abuse victim advocate. She's the author of The Courage Coach, and she's with us today from Birmingham, Alabama. And Ashley, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Jules Woodson is with us. She's a Christian advocate and survivor of sexual assault, also in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Alabama. And Jules, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks. All right, we'll try to get that phone line worked out here. Uh, Ashley, before we talk about what's happened so far at the conference, you're in day two, I think, of this gathering in uh, in Nashville or in Birmingham, right? That's correct. Okay. Yes, um, it's been going on. Uh, they've had some pre um, events, but the the main event is you know uh, Monday. Tuesday and Wednesday. Got it. So I'm interested in the expectations that you went into this convention with. What did you What did you hope would happen? What did you think would happen? Well, uh, the Southern Baptists are really in a huge um, scandal right now, sexual abuse, domestic violence, um, all types of abuse. And uh, unfortunately, what we've heard from them so far is just a lot of words. And really, that's what we've seen over the last couple of days is they've had panels where they're talking about it. They are passing uh, resolutions and changes to the Constitution, but things that aren't actually going to create changes for survivors um, until years down the road, if ever. So um, unfortunately, that was kind of what I was expecting. And so far, that's what we've seen is just a lot of words, not a lot of meaningful action. Well, let me ask you this, though. I mean, are workshops and resolutions part of a movement to transparency? And it just isn't happening quickly enough for you. Or do you think this is this is kind of more of the same of the uh this is you know we don't walk the talk we we basically do a lot of talking but underneath you're not seeing a lot of action 
Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, education and conversations are super important. But what we have to remember is advocates have been calling for change for years and years and years, even as back as far as 13 years ago, there were people calling out the Southern Baptist Convention. In 2007, we had almost the exact same layout as we're having here. There's curriculums being created in the Southern Baptist Convention in 2007. They were having talks and Ultimately, nothing came after those talks that really created any change. So until we see some action, until we see a database that's tracking predators, until there's substantive change in how they um, treat women, and until they have mandatory trainings um, and are able to kick out churches or pastors who have pedophiles in the pulpit, um, I'm not really going to be satisfied with just words. Words are important, but they mean nothing without a follow-through, and they've had a lot of time to do that follow-through, and they haven't done it yet. Do you get the sense, though, that women and people who are concerned about this, who may not have been victims themselves, are, are, are feeling freer to speak up about it? I mean, have what you've been doing and others have been doing at least opened the door to more confrontation, open conversation about what's been going on. That and That's different than where the church has been, at least, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think the Me Too movement was really helpful in that. You know, the Me Too and Church Too movement that really um, gave people a lot of freedom. I'm not sure if that has much to do with um, the Southern Baptists and their methods necessarily, but I think the culture as a whole is more ready to listen to the voices of women. And so I think that's why we're seeing uh, additional pressure right now for the church to to take some action. Call here from Chris in Minneapolis. Hi, Chris. Interested in your experience with your own congregation. D- did you say it is a, con- a fairly conservative congregation? Yes. Yeah. Yep, it is a conservative church. Yep. And um, we're doing a lot at the church. Our, our head pastor and elders are doing a lot to combat um, specifically domestic abuse and um, even spiritual abuse, which is something that can be really subtle. Um, but our church is taking it really seriously, and we have a committee for that, and we have a counseling ministry that's taking things seriously, and we have, um, you know, we've, we're have we working with authorities, you know, local authorities when necessary. Um, and so I, I'm just really proud of my church. It is a conservative uh, Baptist church, so um, there is change happening, you know. Chris, I'm, I'm interested in what do you think would happen if someone within the congregation had an accusation uh, to somebody in the in the hierarchy there. And the reason I ask that is you can read story after story within the Southern Baptist faith that says women came forward, parents came forward, and the church, you know, said that they were going to address it and then basically moved on with nothing having changed. I mean, that's really right the inflection point when the church has to turn back and say, uh, this is going to endanger the career of somebody that's in, in the hierarchy here. Now what do we do? Yeah. Yeah, I would say my church is far less concerned with how um, – it might look to, you know, have church discipline for a member who's been doing that or to, to involve the local authorities. Sorry, my son. Um, and they're more concerned about people's lives and people's souls. And so they take that seriously and they take this as a serious issue. Um, so we have had people that, you know, they worked with the police and we've had people mm-hmm. who have had to leave our church because mm-hmm. of this. And, um, you know, we do background checks for our nursery workers. Um, it's all, you know, we don't, we don't let people hang out in the nursery floor. You know, it's, it's all very serious. Right. 
Yeah, Chris, I'm really grateful for the call because you've opened up a lot of things that I wanted to talk with Ashley about. Ashley, do you think the church's resistance, and by the way, the Southern Baptists are not unique in this, but do you think that was about endangering the people who were powerful at the top? It was about perception that the, you know, that our image is going to be damaged as you've thought about this. What do you, what do you come back to? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for bringing up that um, point about your church being a, a good church. Thank you for calling in with that. You know, there there are good churches out there, and I don't want to um, paint myself as somebody who's against all churches or even all Southern Baptist churches. We just we just want them to do better. Um, you know, a, a lot of the ones that aren't uh, doing well right now. But uh, yes, I think that that is a big problem. A lot of times churches are more concerned about the reputation. They're more concerned about keeping the tithe money flowing. They're more concerned about um, just really looking a certain way to the community. And unfortunately, um, some churches, many churches, in fact, are willing to sacrifice um, victims and vulnerable people on the altar of their image. And Um, you know, I think that's really concerning, but that's that's what I see every day. That That's just a – that is such a – it's a startling thing to hear, not as much as you would think given what we've seen in some of the other denominations. But it is such a, at the core, betrayal of what the church – what the guiding principle of these faith communities should be. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the thing that is, you know – an added harm to the victim is you can be victimized in a lot of other places, and those are extremely serious. But when you're in the church and you're victimized by somebody who is a spiritual leader, you'd put a particular type of trust in them. You had trusted your your very soul to some of these leaders and for them to fail you on not only um, a practical level and a, a safety level, but also on a spiritual level, it can be it can be devastating to people's faith. I think this is a good moment to bring Jules Woodson in. She's a Christian advocate and a survivor of sexual assault, and she's been speaking up about what has happened with her. Jules, uh, let's see if the line is clearer now. Hi. Hi there. Thanks for having Hi. me. Really glad you joined us this morning. We had a call, Jules, uh, from a, a listener who was saying. She believes her church is really committed to transparency and discussion about this, and they uh, are proactive on this. I know that you've you've had your own story with a youth minister who never acknowledged the sexual abuse that occurred to you at 17 until you contacted him years later. Do you think that what occurred to you and what you're hearing from other other women and parents in the in the congregations is a few bad apples unique to some of these churches, or do you think this says something larger about the Southern Baptist organization? Um, no, I absolutely. Um, this is as much as they'd like to paint it as a few isolated incidents that have popped up in the news media. Um, it is. It is definitely an epidemic within the church. Um, You know, this has been going on for a long time, and really what I've seen in my own story as it's unfolded and so much that has come forward over the last year is that there's there's a problem with the system. This is not just one pastor who 
failed, you know, and, and committed a crime. This is a whole system that has allowed these people um, and the problems to perpetuate. Let me take a call here from Kat in St. Paul. Hi, Kat. It sounds like you've had some experience with this. Yeah. Um, when I was a child, I was a victim of pretty prolonged abuse by a deacon of my church. Mm-hmm. And it was finally reported by the church. But in that report, they wrote a letter, specifically the pastor wrote a letter in support of my abuser, asking that he not be given harsh prison sentences because the church would support and care for him and ensure that he never did anything like this again. And then what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. He was accepted back in the community. And as far as I know, no one was ever informed. And I was pretty ostracized, both emotionally and physically from the church space. Can I ask you what denomination that was in? That was a Presbyterian church, which um, at the time they did a lot of lip service to the same kind of processes of accountability. And, you know, they considered themselves very progressive. And and so this deacon went back into the faith community on as if nothing had happened. Yeah, he received Christian-based counseling was the only recommendation for his treatment, quote-unquote. Wow, I, I really appreciate the call. Um, I think it goes right to the heart of what we're talking about here. I mean, Ashley, I read story after story in the lead-up to this convention from parents who— brought the abuse of a child to the uh, attention of the authorities. And the I, 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 this is so incomprehensible. And the authorities really saying, yes, we'll handle it and nothing changing. It is incomprehensible. How, how do you how do you and Jules, you know, come to some kind of understanding of this? Yeah, it's it's truly heartbreaking and I appreciate the caller who shared their story. I'm I'm so sorry for what you've been through. It's it's not your fault and I I just I just want you to know that. Um but yeah, I mean, unfortunately this is a story that we hear every day. I mean, I I get people writing to me and calling me saying that they've reached out to their church leaders and they did nothing. Um, in fact, they went on to support the abuser, and it's it's tragic. It's devastating. And um, again, I think it goes back to the reputation management. And if you think about it this way, if somebody is in a position of power mm-hmm. and they are accused of abuse, um, it is a lot easier to uh, decide not to believe the victim than to believe the victim because that's going to mean there's going to be a lot of fallout, you know, removing that leader, warning the congregation. So it's easier really to say they don't believe the victim. And um, unfortunately, we see that day in and day out in our uh, congregations around the country. Jules, I know you experienced that firsthand. Would you mind just giving us a bit of what occurred when you came forward about this sexual abuse at the hands of this youth minister? Tell us a bit about what happened. Absolutely. Um, So I was sexually assaulted by my youth pastor when I was 17 years old and in the youth group. I reported it within 24 hours um, to the pastors of my church, and he stopped me in the midst of my complete breakdown while explaining what happened, and he said, so you're telling me you participated. And I immediately felt 
a whole new level of shame and blame um, that this was somehow my fault. In their eyes, they saw it as a consensual sexual sin. Um, I asked what was going to happen. They said the church would handle it. Um, He went on to preach, um, even taught True Love Waits, which is um, all about abstinence and sexual purity and not only physically but in your thoughts as well um, with the youth group. I did end up telling um, some girls in a small discipleship group that I was a part of and it was one of those girls who went home and told their parents what I had shared and those parents contacted the church and then then it was like the secret was out, and so they did have to do something. But what they ended up doing um, was they allowed him to resign. They threw him a going-away party. They never wow. informed the church congregation um, what, had, what he had done. They simply said he had made a mistake. And, um, and then within, I believe it was six months, he was working at another church um, in the Tennessee area and had built his way up and 20 years later was um, one of the lead pastors at a mega church in, in Memphis. Um, so January 5th, 2018, um, well, actually December 1st of the year before, I had sent him an email asking him if he had remembered. Um, I received no response, no acknowledgement. And it was January 5th of 2018. I decided to tell my story publicly. I thought maybe 100 people would hear my story, and if it could just help one person who had been through what I'd been through, um, then it was worth it to me. Um, little did I know that that day he would come out with his own statement after I shared my story admitting to the abuse. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, he went before his megachurch congregation. He, um, with the support of the senior pastor there, and you know, admitted to abusing me and got a standing ovation from his church. So I've seen you know, double, um, double the horrible response, not only 20 years ago when I reported it and they covered it up and told me not to talk about it. Um, and then the response 20 years later when I came forward and he is supported and loved and, um, and yeah, even it, receives a standing ovation. I, I, in fact, if you're all right with it, I, I watched the, his, uh, a quote-unquote apology and um, some of your reaction. I, I thought we could listen to a bit about what this youth pastor, Andy Savage, said to the congregation that he was sure. working for when he revealed that he was stepping down. And I, I just want our listeners to listen very closely to the specific way he uses language in this. Uh, when this happened 20-plus years ago, I did everything I knew to do under the counsel I was given to cooperate with those involved, to repent of my sins, take responsibility for my actions, and seek forgiveness. I never sought to cover this up. Is, is, all, of that, um, is all of that technically true? And what do you hear in the way he's describing this, Jules? Um, well, it's technically um, not all true. Um, and, you know, in his language, he uses very um, minimizing words. Mm-hmm. I think um, they mentioned how it was 20 years ago, um, many, many times. They call it, he called it an incident. Right. Um, when, in fact, um, it's 
categorized by Texas law as non-consensual sexual assault. Um, so this is this is a crime that occurred. Um, and not only did he commit the crime, um, but the pastors who I reported it to um, were mandated reporters. And they also committed a crime by not reporting it to police. So it's it's very typical um, to see this from a perpetrator when they, you know, want to minimize things. And it's really you know, enable the cheap grace that, that Christians are, you know, so quick to offer um, when at this point, you know, we're, we're talking about a criminal act. Um, we're not talking about a mistake. You didn't, you know, happen to microwave your oatmeal too long. You know, this was a, a criminal act, and, and it needs to be dealt with and, and spoken about accordingly. Yeah, Ashley, um, as I understand it, as Jules has said, the congregation who listened to this stood up and applauded Pastor Savage's words, I assume because they thought it required courage to come out and make a statement like this, but makes me wonder about what's happening in the congregation. You know, the people that are receiving this, are they reacting that way because there is a, there is an understanding that this is going to shake the power structure and people are, you know, deeply uncomfortable with this? Why do you think congregate average people react the way they do to things like this? I think the simple answer is the pastors and church leaders are grooming them for years to have responses like this um, from the way that they preach their sermons, from the way they counsel people, um, you know, behind closed doors. Um, you know, I think average people, a lot of times they they aren't experts on this, but you know, they're not expected to be experts on this because they're not the church leaders who uh, should be mandated reporters and and all this kind of stuff. So I I think a lot of the information they're getting fed is from the church leaders who have an agenda. So, you know, whether the church leaders right out said, you know, have a standing ovation, which honestly, Jewel's story is uh, horrific, but it's not the first standing ovation that has happened for predators. Um, it's it's kind of a common cultural thing in, in a lot of churches, unfortunately. Um, but I, I think whether or not they're told give a standing ovation or not, they've been groomed for years that this is how you respond versus – um, we've just heard about this horrific crime that's happened to a victim, and what can we do to hold perpetrators accountable, and how can we support that victim? Yeah. Jules, um, by the way, I should say that after he made this statement in front of the congregation, he left that position at that church. Is that right? Um, they actually um, put him on leave and and held some sort of an investigation. Uh-huh. And then after that was done, he ended up resigning. Okay. So so was there an investigation that included taking statements from you? I mean, how seriously did the church pursue it? Um, well, they hired um, a company, Ministry Safe, um, and as well as a law, a law firm, um, okay. Scott Fredericks from Texas, um, to investigate Andy Savage and his role in my abuse. I did not want to speak with them. My abuser, Andy, had already admitted to it happening. Right. There was That's right. nothing um, that I needed to say and, and, and relive that trauma, um, you know, with a third party. Um, that being said, you just look at 
how it's handled, they allowed him to resign mm. once again. Right. If you were caught as a, you know, as a boss of a company, uh, you know, sexually assaulting, a, you know, engaging in a criminal act with an employee, would they allow you to resign or yeah, would you be fired? It, it is, it, again, as I said, it, this is really incomprehensible. I, I want to invite our listeners back into the conversation here. As you're listening, it's our newest Women of Faith conversation. And we're talking about the reckoning that's going on this week uh, with the Southern Baptist Church. Their delegates are at a convention in Birmingham, Alabama, and there are calls to for the church to handle very differently the, um, the secrets, long-held secrets of sexual abuse within the church, but also, and on a larger sense, the push for change of the way women are regarded and um, empowered or not within the Southern Baptist Church. And actually, this is an issue that's come up in a number of our conversations on women of faith. So Jules Woodson with us this morning. She's a Christian advocate. She's a survivor of sexual assault, and she's speaking out about her own experience. And Ashley Easter is with us, a Christian feminist and writer and abuse victim advocate. And she is the author of The Courage Coach. If you have grown up, still attend a conservative faith community, I wonder if you have confidence that the church leaders are as committed to accountability and transparency and equity as they should be. How are your faith leaders handling calls for accountability? I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road there. What do they do when the power structure in that church or in that denomination is called to accountability. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828 and on Twitter at Carrie NPR. We got a call, um, Ashley, from a listener who probably is asking something that a number of listeners wonder about, which is why victims don't go right to the police. Why do they turn to the church leadership only to have the experience that we've heard from so many people? What's your thought on that? When you experience abuse, it's um, one of the most uh, painful things that you can ever experience in your life. And um, when you're experiencing that, there's also trauma that happens. And you don't necessarily know what people you should reach out to. Like you're you're just trying to deal with this pain. And so for a lot of people, the person that they want to reach out to for comfort is their pastor or their church leader because they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed by the pain of what just happened to me. Surely my church leader will be able to guide me. Um, And so they put their trust in the church leaders. And um, unfortunately, a lot of times the church leaders don't do the right things by the victims. But I I think it's really just this place of um, desperation, of pain. Um, I've been there myself. You know, I'm a survivor myself. And um, you know, I, I think your first gut reaction is to reach out to somebody who's told you they're a safe person who cares for you and says that they're there to help you. That makes a lot of sense to be enfolded in the warmth and what you think is still the integrity of the community that you've trusted so long. Jules, does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, you know, you have to remember, I, I was a minor um, when my assault happened. And so, um, you know, I didn't even know or understand truly um, while processing 
you know, the trauma I had been through, what what the correct steps to take were. Um, I was mortified. I felt dehumanized. Um, by the assault, I was embarrassed to tell my parents. So to me, the first thing that made sense was not only go to my pastors because they should be safe people, but they were um, his bosses. Right. You know, this was my youth right. pastor who assaulted me. So, you know, you hear, let's go up the chain of command. And so I went to the people that are in charge of him, thinking that they would be safe. You know, the other thing that I'm struck by, Jules, in watching that statement that uh, Andy Savage made is how often this word repentance comes up. I mean, he he mentioned it. It's also in the language of Southern Baptist leaders and many other church denomination leaders. And we did a show last week specifically on the concept of repentance. We we spoke with Rabbi Donya Ruttenberg, and I thought it'd be valuable to hear how she defines it and whether you think the church leadership really, really embraces that at a core level. So let's listen. First of all, repentance is a good in its own right. It's not a thing to do so that you can get the cookie <laughs> at the end. It's mm-hmm. what you need to do in order to repair the harm you have caused, in order to Uh, get to a place of wholeness and transformation. It is not easy. There are no quick fixes. There are a lot of very difficult, uh, involved steps. Yeah, I I mean, you can see she is saying, Jules, um, you don't just, hey, I repent so you can move on. Right. How do you see the church approaching this idea? Well, yeah, it goes back to the idea of cheap grace is so often um, handed out and, and, you know, the call to for repentance. I've said, I'm sorry, let's move on. Right. Well, the thing is, you can be sorry, and, and I could forgive you, but you have disqualified yourself from the pastoral position. Um, the Bible specifically talks about um, qualifications of a pastor, and um, when, when you have um, sexually abused someone or you have covered um, for someone who has sexually abused someone, um, I feel it, it, it's very black and white. Um, you can absolutely be a Christian. You can be your sorry, but you have disqualified yourself from the pulpit. Not only that, but, um, you know, I, what I'm seeing so much in my story and in many other stories that have come to fruition over the last year is that this is contrived repentance. You know, if, if these people were truly sorry, it shouldn't take um, the New York Times calling them out. It shouldn't take the Washington Post calling them out. It shouldn't take national media to get them to say they're sorry. Right. You know, I, it's more of, I'm sorry I got caught than it is a genuine repentance. Ashley, you agree with that? I do. I, I think that's great uh, what you said, Jules. And I just add that um, repentance... Um, doesn't mean that you now don't have to have the consequences of the law. So you can repent. You can be sorry. Um, but to really be repentant and really be sorry, that means you're going to submit to the local um, government officials to go through the legal process. You're going to admit and cooperate with them. That's true repentance. Um, true repentance isn't just saying, hey, I'm sorry. Um, let's move on. Mm-hmm. You know, you 
you've got to admit that this was a crime. Um, this isn't just something that you say, oops, I'm sorry, kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I 100 percent agree with Jules. And, and I, I think that there's, um, you know, a lot of misunderstandings about repentance and forgiveness and, and, and all of those things. You know, um, in, in listening to the way both of you talked about this, I, I was also reminded what the rabbi said about the concept of atoning. Repentance and atoning are two different things, but how uncomfortable atoning it, true repentance is and then atonement is because you have to linger in the place that most of us don't want to linger in, which is shame and deep regret. And the idea of repentance and atonement is, you know, kind of making a turn and then spending a lot of time saying what led me to that place. Well, that's the uncomfortable work, Ashley, that, uh, you know, a lot of us don't want to do and that apparently the church doesn't require, that many, too many churches don't require. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of incorrect teaching about um, forgiveness, about repentance, and as uh, Jewel said earlier, a, a lot of cheap grace. And, you know, um, whether it is, you know, sins of the nation, the way we've treated people of color, whether it's abuse, you know, there's this idea out there that we can just say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. We're just, you know, right. going to forget about that and move on. Well, th- that's not how it works. You have to sit with what you've done. You've got to understand. You've got to accept the consequences. And you also need to allow the victim to decide how they want to be treated after that. So that doesn't mean that you're reconciled with them. It doesn't mean that you're able to have a relationship with them. It doesn't mean that you're able to get back in the pulpit. Um, so I, I think we unfortunately don't have a good teaching of that in our churches most of the time. Natalie in St. Cloud. Hey, Natalie. Hi. Thanks so much hi. for calling. What, oh, thanks what? so much for talking about this. And thank you to the women that you're having on for um, for bracing yourself for this Agreed. horrible but needed conversation. Agreed. What what are what are you uh, adding to this? Well, I ha- I grew up in conservative churches, and mm-hmm. honestly, I've been a part of conservative churches um, until just a couple weeks ago when my family decided to um, leave our church. And specifically, it was about the fact that there are no women allowed in leadership. And so, mm-hmm. I was taught from very young um, that because of my gender, I do not have um, the the fullness of leadership. Um, and one of the gifts that I've been blessed with from from God is leadership. And so um, what I've seen in multiple churches, I was a church worker for 10 years. What I've seen is that because when these hard decisions have to be made and these hard conversations are happening, they're in a closed door room with only men. Mm. And when only men talk about the subjugation of women, um, it is not a full discussion. And so uh, as a woman, I've had to figure out how to how to navigate my own self-worth um, out of places that don't value me for who I am. Oh, boy, Natalie, I'm really glad you called because we have not talked about Beth Moore and we haven't talked about what the Southern Baptist Convention is going to discuss on this. Jules, this is a whole other part of what the Southern Baptist Church has to has to deal with, right? The call for more women to be involved in more leadership and how resistant the church has been. What's the conversation sound like there? Absolutely. Um, you know, and this is one of the um, systematic problems, you know, that I think needs to be talked about. There, um, in general, has been a uh, lack of respect for women, um, especially within the Southern Baptist Church. Um, they are complementarian. Um, they believe, you know, that the men should 
should be the head of the household, that women should be submissive. There's different levels of complementarianism. Um, they call them hard and soft, but but overall, it is um, it is this blanket um, understanding and action that the men are in charge and. When there is a lack of respect for women, um, when women don't have a voice, um, w- we see these problems only perpetuate. You know, Ashley, I, I was read. I'd never, and I didn't know much about this idea of complementarianism, but in reading about it, it sounds like some version of separate but equal, and we know how that worked out. I mean, yeah, wh- what absolutely, is it? it is. Yeah, absolutely. It is. So complementarianism is patriarchy. It's just another fancy name that we've come up with it to make it sound a little more modern. But it's the idea that men are in power and control over women. Um, Sometimes it's, you know, hard patriarchy where it's like, you must submit to me. And sometimes it's nice patriarchy, which is like, please submit to me. But at the end of the day, um, women are still being put in a position where they are under the power of men. And they're not going to be having their voices heard as equal in conversations like abuse. Um, they're not going to be able to be in positions of power where they're able to affect change as much as men are. And, um, you know, one thing that I learned in the um, sexual assault response program that I was trained with, like the first lesson you learn is abuse is always, without exception, motivated by power right. and control. Right. And then when you have a system that is built on power and control, and that is deeply rooted into our faith communities, why are we surprised when there's a massive abuse scandal? It's not to say everybody who believes in complementarianism is going to be abusive, but the system of it is a power and control system, which will lead to abuse. So so you have this new president of the convention, this Pastor Greer. He's been in, in uh, this position for what? Uh... I don't know, six About months a year. or so? A year? Okay. Is he, he sound, he's saying a lot of the right things, Ashley, to come back to what you said at the beginning. Is he prepared to open up this discussion to what we've talked about, about this clergy abuse, but also about this oppression of women within the, within the congregations? Is no. that, is that too much? I guess I'm also asking, is it too much to ask, um, of a of a convention where there's a probably a lot of people who uh, who are attending who think everything's just fine going the way it is. Right, right. No, I I don't think that he's doing everything he could do to affect change here. Um, yes, he's saying some nicer language, but it kind of goes back to the thing of um, you must submit or please submit. The outcome is the same. I see. Women are being put under control of men. And so whether it is, yes, you can preach from the pulpit on Sunday, but it has to be under our authority. We've got to approve your sermon notes, you know, whatever it is. Again, women still aren't being equal to men. They're still having to answer to men. And, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, with with the abuse situation, yes, he's saying some of the right words, but he has known about these abuses for years. I have advocate friends who have told him about specific situations of mm. abuse. Mm-hmm. He knew about those something like nine years ago, and he did nothing. And the only reason, in my view, that he's doing anything now is because there's media pressure. So, you know, so far, all we've seen is a lot of words. We haven't seen any actions that are protecting our children today. 
um, protecting vulnerable people today. Um, so, you know, overall, I am not satisfied, but I, I don't think it's too much to ask for him. When when you decide that you want to run for presidency of the largest denomination, uh, a Protestant denomination in the world, you should have in your mind that this is going to be a big job and that your first role is to protect. And, you know, I, I don't see him doing that. Ashley and Jules, thank you for taking an hour out of uh, fighting the good fight to have a conversation with us. Thank you so Absolutely. much. And I Thanks wish you well. I wish you well thank at you. the convention. Thank you. Thank you.